Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. For well over a century, Muslims have lived, worked, and prayed in Brooklyn, making it a major center of Muslim life in New York City and in the nation. In this episode, we examine the long and dynamic histories of Muslims in Brooklyn. More than anything else, I come away with more questions, and I want people to come away with not now I know about Muslims in Brooklyn, but wow, there's so much to know about Muslims in Brooklyn, and this project has inspired me to want to learn more. And now this is what I think is very interesting about looking at this document for this particular episode. It doesn't say Islam or Muslim anywhere in this document, right? But yet when Zahir and I look at it, we kind of see those influences all all over it. You know what I'm hoping for? Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to live in Brooklyn until a time where we can say, you know, I can put out an album that's mostly not in English and people will be like, one of the greatest American albums came out in Brooklyn. To have these conversations about like what Islam is for us in 2018 um, is really beautiful because there's no right answer to it. For the past year, my colleagues Zahir and his project staff have immersed themselves in the history and experiences of Muslim Brooklynites. The result of this is our project, Muslims in Brooklyn, which has now amassed 50 oral histories and over the next year will roll out with a series of programming, educational materials, and much more. I'm so excited to be talking to Zahir today about this amazing project. So Zahir, give us the basics on this project, Muslims in Brooklyn. So Muslims in Brooklyn, as you said, is a multi-year project, multifaceted project, at the core of which are oral histories. One of the things that was really important for us was to create a space in the archives for the voices and experiences of Muslims in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, we often talk on the podcast, not just about the things that are in our collections, but also the silences in our collections. And I think this is a great example of how we project planned around the incredible need to fill an emptiness that was in our, our archives because this story is so central to the fabric of Brooklyn's history and to what Brooklyn is and is becoming, we felt really behooved to take on what has ended up being a really massive documentation and oral history project. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we talk to people both in and outside of Muslim communities in Brooklyn, we realized how very little people knew of the history of the long history of Muslims in Brooklyn, how far back it went, and also how many different communities comprised those stories. And so I think once we have a chance to make these oral histories available, once we have a chance to to bring them into our archive, I think it's really going to transform the way that people understand Muslims in Brooklyn, in New York City, in the United States, but really how people understand Brooklyn and our city. You know, uh, New York 
has about a quarter of all of the Muslims who live in the United States. That's incredible. And Brooklyn, within New York, has one of the highest concentrations of Muslims. It's the borough with the highest number of mosques. It is the borough with the oldest mosque. It is the borough with the largest mosque. And not just mosque. It is also a site of incredible activism and organizing and artistic creativity coming out of various Muslim communities. And so I think these are some of the things that really necessitated and called us to this project. One of the things I'm so excited about the collection is that it really shows and it really complicates um, what somebody might understand to be a Muslim Brooklynite and what that means uh, for people and for communities. And part of that is about a long and really diverse history here in Brooklyn. So where does our story begin when we're talking about the history of Muslims here in Brooklyn? Well, I I would think that the story begins um, with slavery. We know that a significant number of enslaved people who were brought from uh, West Africa were Muslim. In terms of New York City, we're not sure where they were settled. And certainly we haven't uncovered anything as yet that is significant enough to talk about a kind of surviving community in the way that in Sapelo Islands or off the coast of Georgia and the Carolinas had like these contained communities that sustained African religious survivals, including Islam, over a few generations. So we, we haven't been able to go that far back. But what we like to say in terms of this project, and certainly using oral histories can only take you back but so far, is that Muslims have been here for well over a century. And one of the earliest communities to settle in Brooklyn were the Eastern European Tatar community. And this is a group that established the American Mohammedan Society in 1907. And by 1931 had opened up a mosque in Williamsburg, which is still with us today. It's still here today. And it is uh, one of the oldest, longest opened mosques in the country, Uh, not just in New York, but in the country. There have been older mosques or mosques that were opened before 1931, but they closed down. So this one is still open and carries that legacy. So this was one of the earliest mosques. And what's so interesting is that these are people from a part of the world that maybe people don't think of when they think of Muslims, right? A lot of people still think that uh, Muslims are Arabs and Arabs are Muslims. And in Brooklyn, we have a significant number of Muslims who aren't Arab, and we have a significant number of Arabs who aren't Muslim. And this group in uh, Williamsburg is not Arab. They are certainly Muslim, but they're not Arab. And so I think this is one of the things I really like about this project is being able to spotlight this long history and in these communities. When I think about the history of Islam in America, I mean, of course, before we get to sort of a very current period, I, of course, think of the Nation of Islam and African-American Islam. So where does that story pick up here in Brooklyn? That story picks up in the 50s. We would encourage our listeners to go check out our episode on Malcolm X in Brooklyn, where we covered some of Malcolm's history. In fact, in 1963, Malcolm X opened the Nation of Islam's mosque in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was then known as Muhammad Mosque Number 7C. 
and it later would be known as a Masjid Abdul Musi Khalifa, which is also still standing as one of the longest standing Muslim institutions in the city. There were several other African-American Muslim communities in New York City, not just the Nation of Islam in Brooklyn. There were splinter groups from the Nation of Islam, like the Five Percenters, who become prominent in hip-hop later in the 80s. There was another group in Bushwick called the Ansarullah that kind of fizzled out and their own traditions changed. And then there was a significant African-American Sunni tradition in Brooklyn, starting with the establishment of a mosque in Brooklyn Heights on State Street. Uh, Many people call it the State Street Mosque. It was formerly called the Islamic Mission to America. And it was the it's unclear when the community was founded, but the they were officially incorporated as a religious organization in 1944. It's very likely, though, that they began having meetings in the 1930s. And this is, for people unfamiliar with the geography of of Brooklyn, the State Street Mosque would have been very near Atlantic Avenue in downtown Brooklyn, which was already becoming, by the mid-century, a major destination for Arab immigrants and merchant seamen who were docking on the waterfront and coming down Atlantic Avenue. There were a lot of Arab businesses, and, and so it was fitting that a mosque would rise up in that milieu. One major theme and through line that I hear through all of this is the diversity of experience. And that's not just that there was an African-American experience and an Arab experience, but that even within those groups, there was multiple experiences, groupings and identities. So I'm imagining that will play out as well when we think about the history of Arab migration and Arab Muslims in Brooklyn in the late 20th century. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so there are different waves of migrants coming from predominantly Muslim countries. The earliest were merchant seamen. And then you have around the late 50s, and you have a a small number of migrants. And then in 1965, with the Immigration Act that removes the essential ban on Asian immigration, you see a wave of early migrants to the United States and certainly to New York City. And most of that wave were students and professionals, people who had means largely, who made that journey. There, There were others, but that's when you see some of the earliest movements to establish community Communities. Uh, and, you know, I think many people in that generation weren't sure if they were coming to stay or if they were coming to stay for a little bit. So a lot of the efforts to establish community were either temporary or if they were permanent, they were largely cultural community centers or organizations designed to preserve identity. Then in the 80s, you see another wave of immigration reflecting war-torn nations, refugees. I think towards the later part of the of the 80s and 90s, there is a significant Yemeni population. And so I think even when we think of the Arab community, there's the Syrian, Lebanese, Egyptian, uh, North African, Moroccan, Palestinian, Yemeni. And, you know, I think we do a disservice by collapsing all of these people under under one category, which we tend to do as, as Americans. I think it's similarly with people of African descent. You know, there are also African immigrants coming to Brooklyn, and they too are bringing their tradition of Islam. In fact, in the 1970s, a Nigerian Muslim Association was founded in Brooklyn. So that adds another layer of 
of of complexity to how we understand the intersections of race and nationality and religion in the borough. Well, and that collapsing of identity into just this sort of monolithic Muslim has unfortunately really informed the political moment in which we're in right now. And even sort of the language of the Muslim ban completely wipes away the kind of identity subtlety that you're describing. So what does this project, how can this project kind of inform this sort of racist politicized moment that we're in right now? Well, you know, one of the things that, um, and this is, I think, what oral history really gets you to do is that it acquaints you with the intimate life of the narrator. And I don't mean sexually intimate. I mean, that's possible. (laughs) But I mean, intimate in terms of the insider view of how people see themselves in their communities. And, And I think overwhelmingly, you know, what I came away with was how unremarkable Islam was to these narrators. And when I say unremarkable, not that it isn't meaningful, not that it isn't, um, for many people, a significant way of organizing their spiritual orientation, but that it is so integral and integrated into their experiences. It's unremarked upon, right? That they may dress in ways that we think are different, but they don't see it as different. They may perform rituals that we see as different, but they don't see it as different. And I think that it is what emerges is, is, and I don't want to say normalizing because, you know, I don't want to get into that idea of what is normal and what is not normal. But we're reminded that our ideas of normal are very much shaped by who we are. And when you start talking to other people and listening to other people and, and learning about other people's histories, you realize that normal shifts and what you think is normal is, you know, other people have their own normal. And for most of these narrators that we interviewed, Islam is coincidental. It is coincidentally who they are. It is not when you get within a Muslim community, the markers of identity that are important to be are, are not whether or not you're Muslim, it's whether or not you're old or young, whether or not you're male or female or gender nonconforming, whether or not you are first generation or second generation, whether or not your people are from the South, whether or not, you know, it's a whole. And, and those are markers that I think transcend religion. This is such a multidimensional project. How on earth did you come to define the themes that will shape this project? So, you know, I think the themes were kind of looking at the history and thinking about what were the kind of operating dynamics in that history that were uniquely experienced by Muslims, but not unique dynamics, Right. So the themes that kind of emerge that we've used as touch points in thinking about the ways that we approach the oral histories and the way that we approach our research are um, migrations. And that's the movement of people. So physical migration, but also spiritual migration, people moving toward and away from Islam. The second is community for cultural formation and institution building. What are the kinds of ways that people developed practices or sustained practices? What are the community institutions they developed to sustain their identity and nurture their practices? The third is neighborhood change and development. Where did they live? How did they change their neighborhoods? How did their neighborhoods 
change them. The fourth is civic engagement. What are the ways that people participated in the civic life of the borough, either formally or traditionally through electoral politics or even through protest? And the fifth was arts and creativity, the the role of Muslims in the flourishing of arts in Brooklyn. So what is the one big takeaway you want our audience to understand about the experiences of Muslims in Brooklyn? I approached this project thinking I would have an answer that would be the best response to that question. And and I actually have a question. (laughs) I thought this project would help answer the question of who Muslims in Brooklyn are and what their histories have been. And I think we definitely point in that direction. But more than anything else, I come away with more questions. And I want people to come away with not now I know about Muslims in Brooklyn, but wow, there's so much to know about Muslims in Brooklyn. And this project has inspired me to want to learn more. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. When we went into the archives in search of a document or two to help us understand more about the history of Muslims in Brooklyn, we came across some obstacles, as we've said earlier in this podcast. In fact, one of the reasons for the Project Muslims in Brooklyn is to address the silences in the archive. But even if there were silences in the archive, it wasn't completely mute. There was something that we found that helped us think differently and more broadly and deeply about the multi, multi-layered history of, of Muslims in Brooklyn. I think that's something important about thinking about the history of Islam in Brooklyn, but also more broadly the history of religions in the world, not yeah. just in the United States, is that there is a religious and spiritual component to them, but there's also a cultural component. There is a political component. And these concepts can diffuse and have enormous influence on the culture at large. And I think that the document that we're going to look at today is really reflective of what a significant impact very different notions yeah. of Islam had um, on Brooklyn. You know, and I think that's such an important point because I think we have a tendency to essentialize um, exactly. these identities as though they are these like self-contained things, these really this thing that is separate from everything else. And just as an understanding of say European art and history should be studied alongside the role of the church, there are histories in the United States that are uh, our understanding of which is enhanced by understanding the history of Islam in the United States. Exactly. And so in this segment, we're really going to be looking at the history of Islam and its particular impact on a community that you and I have already spent a lot of time talking about, which is an African-American community, in this case, in Crown Heights. Yes. And we're looking at a brochure from a school called the Al-Karim School. And this school was founded in the early 1970s. And you can tell from the name, the influence of Islam on the name of the school, Al-Karim School. Absolutely. Al-Karim is Arabic. Kareem means noble or generous. And so this is certainly a kind of aspirational theme that the school has by its name. 
And just for a little context in this, we're seeing the bringing together of a lot of different ideas at this particular moment in the 1970s. Um, the influence of the Nation of Islam on Brooklyn and these particularly these African-American communities, the role of Afrocentrism and the sort of emergence of really wanting to bring to life the importance of African history That's right. to global history and then also to Brooklyn and Brooklynites. That's right. This is also the aftermath of the 1968 school strike in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, which led to a nationwide way for independent black schools and independent black cultural educational institutions. So you around this time, you also have the East in Bed-Stuy, which is an important African-American cultural institution. So when this school was founded, it was definitely something that was in the air for independent black schools that taught with a spirit of self-determination history and culture of black people. And so what is this document? It's sort of like an informational or marketing brochure. It's a trifold. And it basically is just a, here's what this school is and here are its beliefs. And now this is what I think is very interesting about looking at this document for this particular episode. It doesn't say Islam or Muslim right, anywhere right. in this document, right. right? But yet when Zahir and I look at it, we kind of see those influences all over it. That's correct. Um, you know, other than the name, which is a immediate kind of giveaway, uh, there is nothing there unless you understand the history of Islam in Brooklyn and in the African-American community. Then you begin to sense, you know, what some of the common themes are that that emerge out of the description of the school's programs. I think one thing that's really notable to me is the description of the curriculum. And so I'm just going to read a little bit from it. Um, so a major topic that they cover is agricultural science, which includes beekeeping and honey production, horticulture, modern livestock production. Again, this is Crown Heights, Brooklyn, 1970s. Poultry production, animal science. And then there's a whole section on elementary carpentry and crafts. And here's how they describe history, actually. Students are guided through the history of civilization beginning in Africa, world history, and American history. Now listen to that prioritization. I think that's really important. And then in their language laboratory, they are focusing on Swahili, Arabic, and Spanish. Yeah, you know, this is certainly in the history of Islam in the United States, in the African-American community, there was a strong tradition that people in the community refer to as do for self, the phrase do for self, which talked about self-sufficiency, economic self-determination, and the establishment of complete systems, economic systems that people in the communities would depend upon. And a key element of that was we would call today food sovereignty, right? right? So focusing on how to source your own food, focusing how to grow food. And I don't know how much uh, training people got in livestock, but I can imagine, um, you know, when you think of the movement for community gardens and urban gardening, that this would be something that would have fit just perfectly in to this curriculum. But I think um, the curriculum helps us understand how possibly the influence of Islam was on this school. So, you know, Julie and I unpacked some of the history of the school in terms of its founders and the school was founded by a couple, Abdullah Abdur Razak and his wife, Aura Abdur Razak, who also was known as Aura Clark. We actually have oral history interviews with Aura Clark 
And her son, Kareem Kamara, who was a student at the Al-Kareem School, and both of those interviews are in our Voices of Crown Heights collection. And what's interesting is that in the oral history interview with Aura Clark, Islam is never mentioned. And in Kareem's interview, Islam is mentioned in discussing his father. So one gets the sense that Islam may not have been the primary or only religious tradition that the family was exposed to, but it's clearly an influence here. Abdullah Abdul Razak was also known as James 67X. He was a chief aide to Malcolm X and followed Malcolm X when Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam. So, you know, there is that lineage here that finds its expression even implicitly in the school. I also think that indirectly there are influences of... Islam that go back further than the Nation of Islam in Brooklyn. You know, there is a long history in the 20th century of especially African Americans looking to sort of recapture and celebrate um, an almost like um, mythic um, global past, um, really responding to the focus on white history when we're talking about American history, looking to rescue an, a, a seemingly forgotten history of African greatness, and even sort of promoting sort of a connection between African history and what they called Oriental history yeah. at the time. You see a lot of this emerging, for example, in the 1920s and 1930s. And these manifestations sort of are tied up with sort of early examples of Muslims in America, but they're also diffusing into so many other parts of black culture. For example, you see a lot of evidence of this in the Chicago Defender, which is a mainstream African-American newspaper Mm -hmm. in the 1920s and the 1930s. And again, it goes back and forth between is this religious? Is this Muslim? Um, Is this just part of a sort of a larger cultural movement in black culture? I don't know that they can necessarily be separated out. Yeah, I think that's an excellent observation. Uh, I think what happened in the 20th century Century is that Islam came to function as almost this source of a counter narrative, you know, that let's say, quote unquote, Western European history model was so deeply intertwined with Christianity that the counter narrative to that seemingly had to come from somewhere outside of that. And so these folks who embraced Islam were already embracing something, a tradition that was, I mean, banned from Europe, right? Like, I mean, in 1492, the Jews and the Muslims were kicked out of Europe, essentially, and the Inquisition, you know, tamped down on any kind of a non-Christian expression. And so much of what is inherited in what we call Western canon has been purged of non-European, non-Christian ideas, even though they were part right. part of them, right. right? And so what you have in the 20th century are people uh, seeking to recover and go beyond that border, that barrier that maybe required reaching into a different spiritual tradition. And because Islam had become, you know, quite prevalent in West Africa, in East Africa, in North Africa, not so much in Sub-Saharan Africa, but for many African-Americans, Islam became a critical kind of link in reaching back to that different diaspora, that different source of that narrative. And and that's why um, when you read the description here of the curriculum, there's a sense of certitude 
in the way that this curriculum is presented. There is no question whatsoever that history begins with Africa. Right. Where else would That's it begin? Right. Well, and not just history. Yeah. I mean, even sort of embedded in the descriptions of natural sciences and mathematics, you know, part of that reaching back to the greatness of African and Asian history was also saying, like, as you were getting at, great ideas originated with yes. us. Um, yes. The natural and organic modes of scientific inquiry are not white manifestations. These have roots in Islam, right? And with, again, without even saying Islam, without even saying this is a Muslim approach, right, right. this school was sort of embodying that long tradition of ideas and teaching it to the next generation of Brooklynites. When we set out to do the oral history interviews, you know, I set out, you know, as a historian, uh, seeking people who could help us recover the past. And so we have narrators who are in their 50s and their 60s. We even have some narrators who are in their 70s, and they tell us amazing stories of the past. But we also talked to younger narrators born in the 80s and the 90s who shared with us their experiences as well as their hopes for the future. And as a historian, I still find value in that because people's vision or hopes for the future tell us a little bit about where they have come from because that shapes their frame of reference. So in this segment, we are going to listen to two young Brooklynites who are Muslim and think about the way that they are redefining what that means and what that means to them in a context of an ever-changing Brooklyn. So the first narrator we're going to listen to is Mohammed Fayez. And Mohammed Fayez was born in 1990. So he is 28 years old. Um, and he is an artist and curator of a collective called Poppy Juice, which is a collective for queer and trans people of color. Messy Muslims because we, um, we're messy. We, we're, you know, some of us don't practice. Some of us practice. Some of us eat bacon. Some of us, um, love. Some of us don't only eat halal food. Some of us have, some of us grew up Muslim and are maybe not really Muslim anymore in the sense of like practicing. Um, but are still Muslim, if that makes sense. Um, and some of us have complicated relationships with Islam. Some of us fast and some of us don't. Um, so this year, so last year we were all, last year the group was very active. And we started meeting up and we started having dinners and started going to Yemeni Cafe on Atlantic and just like endless tea and, and like just ordering plates and plates and places like that are amazing because they don't kick you out. Like there's never, the check will never arrive unless you ask for it, which is ideal. Um, and it's amazing because I think we all got that from our families and the way our families sit around and act and stuff. And so, um, messy in that sense and it's beautiful because I really wasn't fasting. I wasn't really for Ramadan until this group chat and last year I did 10 days and then this year I did 25, like all, all on my own volition. And it's beautiful because I can bring it up in my in the chat, like, hey, like, what are y'all eating? Because this oatmeal is not cutting it, you know? And, and like to have these conversations about like what Islam is for us in 2018 um, is really beautiful because there's no right answer to it. 
We talked in earlier segments about the importance of forming Muslim communities and institutions here on the ground um, in Brooklyn. What I think about when I hear that clip is the formation of new kinds of institutions and new kinds of communities Mm -hmm. and how important those are in supporting that identity that in this case is both cultural but also very spiritual. I mean, it just completely resonated to me that when he found his kind of people, like, you know, his crowd that he hung out with at at Yemeni Cafe, um, it made his experiences of fasting on Ramadan so much more meaningful and and worth it for him. What's funny is that I'm not Muslim, and that resonated for me in really interesting ways as I guess I was thinking a lot about how there's a specific history to the experience of Muslims. But then there's a really interesting, I think, methodological question about what kind of universal observations can we make about the experiences of spirituality and Mm -hmm. religion in general? Because there was so much in there that personally resonated with me. And that kind of like need to reinvent the meaning of an ancient religion, in his case, Islam, in my case, Catholic, in the context of like a modern lifestyle, modern beliefs, and how to sort of square those two things. Yeah, you know, there are interesting history stamps in his comments, right? So Yemen Cafe, which is a longstanding institution on Atlantic Avenue, which is we referenced earlier in this episode in terms of its history as an Arab and Muslim uh, neighborhood. He also talked about their group chat, which is the influence of social media, which is a new history stamp, right, to like locate this in time. Uh, What I was so moved by this was the very um, candid struggle, right? The, you know, we have a tendency to, and I think Muslims want to do this, and I think most religious people want to do this, like the the perfect believer, right? Like who's following all the rules. And, And I think, you know, because of how Muslims have been portrayed, there's this idea that if someone is Muslim, they are, they, you can easily put them in a box and they are extreme and they do this. Yes, and, you know, yes, like yes. they, and, and there certainly are people who are extremely devout and they have the freedom and agency in doing that. And, but I, I think what I heard in, Mohammed Fayez's interview was an expanded sense of what is possible to be Muslim. And there isn't a abandonment of criteria, but there is a suspension of judgment, right? Because he's like, I didn't fast before, but but then he says, I did 25. So it isn't that he abandoned the quest to live according to some of these religious dictates. It's that it didn't happen. And because it didn't happen, it doesn't mean you walk away That's from right. it. You know, that there's something there that pulls him back. And I think community is That is deeper is than the thing. practice, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And grounding this in, even though there's a cyber component to this, but I, again, I really like that they actually meet up yep. in person. Absolutely. And that meetup happens in Brooklyn. And he compares the experience of dining at Yemen Cafe to the way our parents, our families would get together. So there is this kind of continuity there that is reflected in this experience. So let's listen to the next clip. This is an interview with Elsara Abunami Elgadi, who is the lead vocalist and founder of the group Elsara and the Nubatones, which performs music rooted in her Sudanese heritage. And here she talks about why she chose to live in Brooklyn. I mean, Brooklyn is the Brooklyn is the core for why I went back to Sudanese music. 
Like, it was really coming. The Brooklyn pride is showing off the pride of who you are, including where you come from. That's parts of what makes you dope in Brooklyn. And so for me, like, Brooklyn is when, like, my pride flags went up. <laughs> like, I was just felt so good here, felt like the other, the rest of me, is what completes me here. It's what makes me a richer citizen in Brooklyn. It's what's what's important in my story too. And there is room for all the different parts. You know, you can still be a Brooklynite and be from all these places and have equal room for them in the forefront of your personality. So for me, Brooklyn is a huge part of my sound. It's a it's the reason the sound is the way it sounds. The only difference is the language. But so many people speak Arabic in Brooklyn, really. <laughs> You know what I'm hoping for? Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to live in Brooklyn until a time where we can say, you know, I can put out an album that's mostly not in English and people will be like, one of the greatest American albums came out in Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, one of the things that really came across to me as we were doing these interviews is how important Brooklyn was to these narrators. You know, I think when you were talking about the themes that really tie this project together, if there's a through line through everything, it is the plurality of experience and the fact that to be Muslim in Brooklyn by definition means to em embrace an identity that encompasses so many different things, sometimes um, paradoxically, yeah. right? And I think that what we see here is that that is a good thing identity wise, right? That in fact, and so I guess this makes me think about the debate that we always have, which is like, is Brooklyn special or is it emblematic of America, right? right? And here, I think we're really leaning towards the former, that there's something about Brooklyn that really um, fosters that diversity of experience. And the case of this narrator, really, like, that's what makes the experience of being Muslim here. Um, and of course, being so many things simultaneously, worthwhile and valuable. Here at Brooklyn Historical Society, we celebrate Black History Month throughout the year. But February still is special for us to celebrate Black History Month. And in that spirit, the events that we're highlighting are in honor of Black History Month. The first... And I'm so excited for this because this writer is such a brilliant, yeah, we're, we're brilliant writer. We're super fans. We're fans. The program is titled Beauty, Media, Money, and More, A Conversation with Tressie McMillan Cotton. And you really need to get her book and you really need to read her writing. It's so brilliant. It's so plain spoken yeah. her her writing is so accessible but still very very brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Um, so here's the description in her new book Thick and Other Essays Tressie McMillan Cotton award winning professor and acclaimed author of Lower Ed embraces her venerated role as a purveyor of wit wisdom and black twitter snark <laughs> about all that is right and much that is wrong with this thing we call society. She is joined in conversation by Harlem-based writer Morgan Jenkins, author of the New York Times bestseller, This Will Be My Undoing. And this is taking place Monday, February 25th. Doors open at 6. The event begins at 6.30. General admission is $10. For members, it is $5. And we look forward to seeing you at that event. She's so great. 
That's going to be fantastic. I'm so excited. Following that, right on the heels of that amazing event is another amazing event, because the following night on Tuesday, February 26th, we are going to be hosting Kelly Carter Jackson, who is the author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Zaheer and I are really excited about this because we went to school with Kelly at Columbia. such a close friend of ours she's an a and just super lovely person <laughs> lovely person and also super brilliant 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 historian and i'm actually so excited to read this book and to hear her talk about it kelly is the assistant professor of africana studies at wellesley and in the new book she examines the political and social tensions preceding the american civil war and the conditions that led some black abolitionists to believe that slavery might only be abolished by violence this event by the way is in conjunction with the fact that our long time and really critically acclaimed exhibition in pursuit of freedom will be coming down in the next couple months so if you haven't seen it yet get here to see kelly and go check out the exhibition as well so again that's tuesday february 26th event is at 6 30 five dollars general admission free for members and we'll link to both of these fantastic events in the show notes and with this episode of flatbush and maine we've made brooklyn history you can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim DeKino, and our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephsehloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.